Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Don Murphy, author of China's Rise in the Global South, Michael Singh, Managing Director and Lane Swig Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, as well as a member of the Vandenberg Coalition's Governance Board, and Craig Singleton, a Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, on the Far East Meets the Middle examining China's growing influence in the Middle East. We hope you enjoy. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, I I will start with the obvious question. Um, China has been deepening its engagement with the Middle East for quite some time, um, but what is most immediately on our radar is the current war between Israel and Hamas. Um, so I'd just like to start by asking, Maybe maybe you, Mike, what, what has China's reaction been to the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas? How have they reacted both to the October 7th massacre as well as the ensuing uh, military conflict? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be uh, with Craig and Don and you, Carrie. China's reaction has been interesting, um, and it, I think, has been telling as well. You know, in past Gaza conflicts, what we have seen is an approach from China that, frankly, mirrors its approach to most regional conflicts, which it has. It means it has sort of issued these bland calls for de-escalation, saying, you know, look, both sides should exercise restraint, um, and um, pretty much left it at that, and then largely stayed out of the actual diplomacy aimed at uh, resolving whatever the crisis uh, at hand is. We saw them do this in, you know, the sort of Gaza conflicts from the early 2000s all the way through uh, the sort of late 2010s. But then during the last Gaza conflict, something changed a little bit where the, the Chinese were a bit more aggressive in their messaging and their messaging was anti-American primarily, not anti-Israeli. But the Israelis took exception to it because the criticism that China was leveling at at the United States, you know, for providing weapons to Israel that were causing suffering in Gaza was implicitly criticism of Israel. What we saw this time around was that China has has really doubled down on this approach. So China's initial statement about the Gaza conflict was basically a sort of uh, a repetition of their usual plain vanilla statement saying both sides should exercise restraint. uh, And, you know, the two state solution is ultimately the answer here. What was different, though, is that the unlike is that the sort of triggering event for this Gaza conflict was so different from past Gaza conflicts, and China's statement didn't really reflect that in any way. So Israel actually interpreted China's statement as essentially hostile because it didn't acknowledge a that Hamas had committed an act of you know heinous terrorism on October seventh, or really express any sympathy for Israel whatsoever, despite the relatively close relations that China has been trying to build with Israel over the past three decades. So so Israel wasn't happy with the lack of support from China. And then, frankly, frankly, China's position got worse from there, because what we saw was official statements that were largely, again, calling for ceasefires and emphasizing the two-state solution, refusing to condemn Hamas or even acknowledge that a terrorist attack had occurred. But then online... And in China's broadcast media, just this absolute gusher of anti-Semitic vitriol, um, which mirrors in a way uh, how China has used the same tools, broadcast media, social media, against, say, Japan over the release of water from the Fukushima uh, reactor, for example. Um, So it really looked like a sort of quite coordinated campaign meant to sort of criticize Israel. But I think what China was really aiming to do, what what China's real target was, was not Israel so much, but the United States. I think what China was trying to do was say, look, only the United States is supporting Israel. We're on the side of, say, the global south or or the majority of the world um, in sort of calling for a ceasefire, in calling for restraint, in in underscoring the suffering of the Palestinian people. Um, And ultimately, again, sort of that was not well received in Israel, and this is going to have a long term 
uh, implication for for China-Israel relations uh, that's frankly not good. I'd like to just follow up quickly on that and then uh, turn a question to Craig. But Mike, what do you think the long-term implications will be? Because obviously China has been trying to keep Israel sort of marginally on its side. You know, they obviously have some relationships. In fact, the United States government has sometimes worried about the deepening relationships between, you know, China and Israel. So what do you think Israel will will sort of do long-term in light of how China's reacted to this particular conflict? Well, I think the answer is we can worry less now about the deepening China-Israel relationship, because I think that, uh, you know, Israel regards China's response as hostile. And, and I think that China and Israel will emerge out of this uh, as not being friends, in fact, which is a strategic loss for China. Just, uh, I think it was uh, a year ago, uh, perhaps, China was extolling the 30th anniversary of China-Israel relations, something that China, again, had invested quite a bit in. China's relations grew from nil with Israel in the early 1990s when it established diplomatic relations uh, to actually quite a robust trade relationship and investment relationship uh, in, in the modern era. And I think that basically a lot of that now will be lost because China has chosen essentially to side against Israel in this conflict. Uh, I think the question really is, what does China hope to gain uh, that might sort of outweigh that loss that they've experienced. It seems to me that China's operating on the theory that um, it can score points, essentially, in the rest of the world against the United States and show, uh, using this opportunity, as it has done in, say, Ukraine, uh, that it has an alternate vision to offer the world, the so-called you know global security initiative, or however you want to frame it. I think the problem with that is that the loss that it will experience with Israel is a real loss, a tangible loss for China. Um, because they had been, in fact, close partners, much to the chagrin of the United States. The question is, are those gains that China is hoping to make real gains? Will it really sort of, is there any state that will be closer to China as a result of this? Will it have really advanced this global security initiative vision? And I think the answer is, I don't think so, because China is not really offering much beyond anti-American rhetoric. China is not going to come to the aid of the Palestinians. Uh, it's not going to coordinate diplomacy to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in fact, when you look at the Global Security Initiative, which is one of Xi Jinping's signature initiatives, it doesn't really offer an alternative to the US-led international order. It's it's mostly rhetoric and, and mostly built around not following the United States rather than offering something affirmative from China. Thank you. And I do want to get deeper into um, into sort of the their the order and system that they're that they're trying to create, particularly as it relates to the Middle East. Um, but, Craig, I know you recently wrote for FDD something quite similar to what Mike's saying, essentially that China's expression of support for the Palestinian cause is not merely symbolic, um, but part of a larger effort primarily to offset American influence in the region. So. What can you tell us about China's exploitation of the Israel Hamas war and how it enhances its own diplomatic clout in the region? Sure. Thanks, Gary. And I wholeheartedly agree with, you know, sort of Mike's quick take on this. And I think he's sort of, you know, in casting itself as an unconditional supporter of the Palestinian cause, you know, Beijing really does aim, I think, to simultaneously sort of enhance its regional influence and then also confound U.S. policymakers, um, you know, in the Middle East, but elsewhere too, you know, China enthusiastically promotes this narrative that the U.S. is the embodiment of arrogance and oppression and even imperialism and you know, it sort of seeks to contrast that with a narrative that China is ostensibly a responsible player that seeks peace. Um, and so I think since the conflict's opening days, Chinese state media, and Mike touched on this, have have absolutely painted the U.S. as a villain. They've they've gone so far as to say that the U.S. is a regional villain that's, quote, behind, uh, plotting behind the scenes uh, of Middle East conflicts. And, you know, they've sort of hinted that Beijing has a a key role in ending them. Um, just this week, China hosted a small contingent of, you know, sort of Arab representatives to lay the groundwork, I think, for some of this uh, sort of broader push later. Um, the Chinese have even met with uh, senior Iranian officials to talk about, you know, promoting regional stability. And so the strategy at least appears to be effectively Iran first and Israel is collateral damage. Um, of course, Beijing has some interesting countervailing interests in the region, namely its ties with Israel, uh, which I agree with Mike are sort of on life support, uh, ties with Iran's Sunni Arab rivals like Saudi Arabia, 
Um, they also have a desire for uninterrupted energy flows despite the Iran sanctions risk. And even with all of that in mind, it does appear right now that you know Beijing is sort of subordinating some of these interests in pursuit of its primary goal, which is really undermining U.S. influence. Don, in your book, uh, China's Rise in the Global South, you analyze about 30 years of China's in interactions with the Middle East um, and Africa across a range of different functional areas, uh, political, economic, uh, foreign aid, and military, um, arguing China's attempting to establish really this alternative world order. Um, so how would you describe the order that they're trying to create, and how has their role in the Middle East changed over time, including the current crisis, but also leading up to the crisis? Right. So first, I should say thank you for having me. And I need to give a quick disclaimer that the views that I express today are my own, and they don't represent the National War College or the U.S. government more broadly. And so I, I think I'll actually start my comments um, in response to Mike and Craig's reflections on the, the current situation and, and then talk about kind of the, the world as it looked before the current situation. So first, I have to say I agree with the assessments, but I just want to give a little bit of a different angle in the way that I look at this as a China specialist looking at this issue more broadly, right? And so the first thing that I would just highlight is obviously during the Mao era, you had the Chinese were providing material support to the Palestinians and to various Palestinian um, groups in what they saw as national liberation movements. As Mike said, since 1992, China has had robust state-to-state -state ties with Israel and has shifted its approach, but it has had over time, I would say a Palestinian leaning approach and starting even in 1997 going forward has been expressing its thoughts regarding this particular um, issue. And part of why I wanna emphasize this is I think one way to understand China's current approach is that they view the current situation as a flare up in the broader Palestinian-Israeli conflict, not as different, which I agree with Mike's assessment that Israel clearly sees this as different and there's lots of differences in it, but the way in which they are approaching it is attempting to stay consistent with their past statements on this issue, which obviously included a two-state solution with an independent Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as the capital, you know, a need to end violence, you know, a number of different dynamics. But the past pattern in China's behavior has also been that every time there's been a flare up, you have had criticism of Israel, of disproportionate response from a Chinese perspective, et cetera, right? So I think what China's attempting to do right now is maintain consistency with its past stance. I think there's two elements driving that. I think one is that they have a long history of supporting the Palestinian side of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in a Palestinian leaning way, right? Um, so I, I do think that's part of it. I do think also part of it is this broader US dynamic and this emerging you know, Sino-American competition. But for example, the, the initial response of not calling out Hamas, and by saying it's consistent, I'm not saying it's the right approach or the, the wrong approach. I'm just saying they're attempting to do that. And I do think the way in which they're addressing this um, is, could be impactful from the standpoint of, I do think that it is resonating with the Arab world, with the Muslim majority world, and with many parts of the global South broadly defined. And so um, I would actually like to maybe turn back to Mike and Craig and see if there, I, I think this is kind of a discussion and then moving on to the the, the other parts of the broader engagement. I would love to hear if, if you have any further thoughts on that, because I think this is, it's a really interesting fluid situation. And to Mike, I'd pose the question to you. you. You made some pretty strong statements about the impact on relations with Israel in the future. And, and I would agree based on the, the current you know, concerns, but it is interesting to think through how relatively balanced relations were previously and whether you know, in the longer term, because I think ultimately, although China is willing to sacrifice its relations with Israel, given its previous stance and because ultimately the Arab world, the Muslim majority world, the global South in aggregate is more important than Israel as an individual country. I don't think they actually want to have poor relations with Israel. I think in an ideal world, they would want to, after this conflict, go back to having positive relations with Israel and in the very long term, advocating for a two-state solution because ultimately, at least from my own analysis and the way that I've looked at this for a very long time, I do think they see the Palestinian-Israeli conflict as the core of 
security issues in the Middle East, and that that needs to be resolved before you can have a peaceful region in the long term. Mike, I'll turn it to you to if if you yeah. think that there is a possibility to um, for sort of a, a, a Chinese Israeli relationship going forward after this um, and how you would react to some of Don's statements. So I, I, I think you will have a Chinese Israeli relationship after this, but it will be a poor relationship because, you know, we can't overstate how much October 7th and the terrorist attacks that suffered affected Israel's security calculus. And it is definitely not just an internal matter, but it is looking at the international scene and noticing which countries are supporting it and which countries are not. Uh, so I've heard Israelis, for example, say that after this conflict, Russia is an enemy because of the attitude that Russia has taken. And, and frankly, the Chinese attitude has been worse than the Russian attitude on this conflict. If you look again, especially at state media, social media, and so forth. So I, I think it is going to be quite poor for Chinese um, relations with Israel. I think, though, that what what shows sort of the naivete or the lack of experience that China has on the world stage on these issues is that I don't think it's going to benefit China in the so-called global south either. You know, because frankly, when you look at the Arab states like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, yes, they're, they're, they're critical of Israel and its operations in Gaza. They'd like to see a ceasefire. Yet at the same time, they share Israel's concerns about Iranian-backed proxies in the region. If you look at their sort of diplomatic calls, overwhelmingly, they say it's the U.S. that's indispensable for resolving this crisis. Nobody says that China is indispensable for resolving this crisis because nobody really thinks that China has either the interest or the influence to do anything about it. And in a way, I think what this will show is it will show the limits of China's influence. You know, and this is going to be in stark contrast with the sort of, you know, very triumphal mood that they were in after brokering the Saudi-Iran rapprochement, where frankly, they didn't have to do much work. Saudi Arabia and Iran wanted to normalize their relations, uh, and China used its good offices to do that. So, so I think it will be a net loss for China on the Israel front, but, but frankly, not a net gain in the Arab world or amongst the global South. I think what China is telling the world is that their relations with a country like Israel, which again, was one of its stronger relations in the region, is disposable. Uh, for the sake of scoring points against the United States. And every country in the region will look at that and take note. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Mike. I mean, there is this, I think China's reaction has sort of revealed this massive, you know, chasm between China's rhetoric and its reach in the Middle East. And that divergence is absolutely on display in the wake of these sort of horrific attacks. I think Don brings up a great point. You know, China has had longstanding ties to the Palestinians, I think going back to 1964 with the Palestinian Liberation Organization's forming. Uh, even just this year, Xi Jinping hosted Mahmoud Abbas um, in Beijing. They finalized a strategic partnership uh, to increase cooperation and funding to the Palestinian Authority. But I think really, by and large, China is, as Mike sort of points out, I think they're pretty incapable of influencing events on the ground today, in so much it appears that they can't really deliver on peace or even a cessation of hostilities. But instead, they are sort of wading their way through to figure out how they can leverage the crisis to position themselves in the region for tomorrow. And that, owing to their lack of fidelity on so much of the history in the region and sort of their mishmash of views on uh, topics over time, makes it very difficult for them to, to immediately capitalize on this. And so it remains to be seen whether uh, they'll come out ahead in all of this, even if for the moment, uh, they do appear to be um, generating some goodwill across the region. You know, I would Carrie. I would just add one more thing, Carrie and Dawn, which is to say, you know, look, a lot of the things the United States says about this conflict. So, for example, about the need for um, Israel's security needs to be addressed are things that, frankly, privately, a lot of countries in the region agree with and understand. But it's difficult for them to say because their publics are in a very different place. And frankly, it helps them for the United States to articulate these things, because these are things which are necessary to bring about uh, a resolution to what's happening. They are necessary for long-term stability. So when you have a state like China, which is not only not saying these things, which is you know not sort of saying the things that are responsible to say, but is in fact saying things like, well, you know, the Arabs need to speak with a more unified voice, almost putting pressure on Arab states to be more pro-Palestinian, 
frankly, again, you may think that you're saying things the Arabs want to hear, but in fact, that's not going to be welcome in Arab capitals, putting pressure on them uh, to be even more responsive to their to their street um, during this kind of crisis. They would much rather external powers be saying responsible things that are difficult for them to say than sort of, you know, being more Catholic than the Pope, as it were. And I do think, uh, real quick, just, and thank you guys very much. I think, this, like I said, this is a fluid situation. I think it's, it's really interesting to look at the different dynamics. One other thing I would just kind of highlight would be on the comments regarding Chinese official statements through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or through the envoy to the UN or through the special envoy versus what's occurring in internal state media as well as social media. I do think it's, it's a really, I think, interesting and destructive dynamic that the PRC, given its level of control of information within its own borders, that it's allowing the level of anti-Semitic and, and very hateful rhetoric and the way in which that's being tied to the U.S., I think that is very, I think it's destructive in the longer term on a number of fronts. And that would be the, the area where I think that behavior very much differs from past behavior, as you've um, brought up in, in your own comments, um, just the magnitude of that kind of um, discourse, the, the very toxic dis discourse that's occurring within China's borders, that I do wonder in the longer term, is there going to be blowback from their own citizens associated with this? Because they're allowing a lot of opinions to be expressed um, that, that are not necessarily productive to China's longer term interests. Mm -hmm. You know, Carrie, if I could say, I think, you know, one thing that's interesting is that the public rhetoric of Chinese officials and, of course, the what you see in the state media and in the and in social media in China, all of which we have to take as sort of, I, I think, quasi-official in some regard as well, really is in contrast with what officials are apparently saying, Chinese officials are apparently saying privately to American officials, which is, which are things like, you know, please include us in the diplomacy, please include us in the quartet for example, a, frankly, a body which has been mostly defunct now for many years. And, you know, that contrast is interesting because, uh, you know, publicly, they're using this to criticize the United States. Privately, I think there is an understanding that they the only way they will get a seat at the table is with U.S. forbearance. And so it does raise a question for U.S. policymakers as to, well, you know, do we see this as an opportunity for cooperation with China? Uh, and are we going to offer them that seat at the table despite this vitriolic rhetoric you see coming. And out of the discussion that President Biden and Xi Jinping had in San Francisco around the, the margins of the APEC summit, it does seem like we're trending in the direction of the latter to see this as an opportunity for cooperation with China. Personally, I think that's a mistake. I think that you know if China is not going to speak and act responsibly in its public role on the world stage, I think it's a mistake for American officials to present a seat at the table to the to Beijing as a sort of gift um, in sort of some vain hope that it'll get cooperation or, or from Beijing or that Beijing will somehow put pressure to bear on Iran. I, I think that that's naive. I want to ask um, a little bit more about this sort of American influence. So we, we've spoken a bit about Chinese leverage, at least um, as it relates to Israel and, and the Palestinian territories. I guess my, my question for you is, help us contextualize America's role writ large and, and whether or not that has also changed in the way the Chinese role has changed. How has America historically dealt with the Middle East, which is something that obviously we've seen shifting over the last few years, and now maybe we're shifting back. So I'm just curious, um, what what is the sort of long-term role of American engagement and how has that changed over time? Well, you know, obviously we have focused heavily on the Middle East uh, in the first part of this 21st century, largely because of 9-11 and because of the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, which then sort of led to a long tail of uh, U.S. intervention and presence uh, in the Middle East. And so we, we had a sort of high watermark of engagement in the Middle East around, say, 2008 and 2009. Uh, and since then, as everyone knows, we have been trying to shift our priorities strategically towards the Indo-Pacific in particular, uh, but also to some extent to Europe uh, in, in large part because of Russia's aggressive activities on its periphery, especially in Ukraine. Um, and that has necessarily meant less attention on the Middle East and less resources for the Middle East. I, I think this is seen in the region as strategic disengagement by the United States from the Middle East, in part because it's compared to this high watermark of 2008, 2009. 
Uh, and so we're sort of uh, everything, every step we're taking is moving down uh, the ladder of engagement in their eyes, even if it's still a very high level of engagement in an absolute sense. And so I think what the United States has been trying to do has been making the case that we can remain actually quite engaged and remain actually the leading external power in the Middle East with a lower level of resources and maybe a lower level of attention than we had at that high watermark in the in the late 2000s. And that has meant, you know, encouraging our partners uh, to build up their own capabilities. Uh, and we have obviously been instrumental in helping them do that. It has been meant encouraging our partners to work more closely together to address regional security threats and to improve the regional economy. And the sort of centerpiece of that effort has been the Abraham Accords, the normalization deals between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, uh, and perhaps with Saudi Arabia uh, coming up. But it's also meant trying to shift our posture in the region away from, you know, sort of the, the heavy use of uh, capital assets like aircraft carriers or the, or the deployment of troops and towards a better use of technology, you know, unmanned uh, aerial systems, unmanned uh, naval systems and things like that, uh, so that we can focus our more sort of heavy assets, as it were, on other regions uh, where we have a sort of higher strategic priority these days. I think, frankly, that has all been going relatively well. And it's been a sort of bipartisan project because it's something that really got kicked off in earnest by the Trump administration and the Biden administration picked it right up and continued it for the most part. And before the October 7th attacks, the big storyline in the region was this sort of negotiation on Saudi-Israel normalization. And I think the Biden administration had been hoping to bring that forward to a conclusion in the spring of 2024. Obviously, that timeline now is pushed back. But I think the hope in Washington is that the trajectory is going to remain the same, that this conflict, which perhaps is an effort by Iran uh, and Iran's friends in the region to derail that uh, sort of American strategic shift, that this conflict will ultimately be something that delays our efforts, but doesn't stymie or block our efforts, that we can get the region back on the trajectory that it had been on. And frankly, the initial indications are positive in that regard, because the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco have made clear that they're not severing their relations with Israel as a result of what's happened, so far at least. And the Saudis have even made clear that the normalization talks that they've been having with Israel are not called off, that, that in fact, Saudi Arabia is still open to those normalization negotiations. And so I think that those will be taken as encouraging signs by U.S. officials. Maybe a question, um, a follow-up question for you, Mike. And Don, I'm curious your view of this as well. Obviously, Iran has is clearly opposed to the normalization arrangements, and, and there have has been some speculation that that was potentially one of a number of motivations for the timing of the October 7th attacks. What is China's overarching view of the Abraham Accords? I mean, is this something that they view as directly threatening to their interests, given they're trying to increase their role as a mediator in the region? Do they see it as unrelated? What's their perspective on the Abraham Accords and how it fits into their agenda in the Middle East? So, you know, uh, this is something that's debated amongst analysts, but I, I, my, I have a clear view. China doesn't like the Abraham Accords. Yes, China can benefit from the Abraham Accords to some extent because, you know, Israel has been a major trading partner. We'll see what happens after the Gaza conflict. The UAE has been a major trading partner, for example. And, and so the idea of Israel and the UAE increasing their economic relationship also creates economic opportunities for China, which has significant economic relationships with both. However, the Abraham Accords means strengthening the U.S. team when it comes down to it. It means strengthening the U.S. role in the region um, because the Abraham Accords uh, mean security cooperation built on a foundation of American training and assistance and equipment. And these are U.S.-led initiatives, um, which I think from the point of view of both folks in the region and outside the region uh, are diplomatic victories for the United States, strengthen the hands of, hand of the United States in the region. So I think for that reason, whatever sort of benefits China may get from them, I think China overall doesn't like them, sees them as a strategic setback for China, whatever sort of tactical gains they may make. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to think through it in that way, because I think China has strong views regarding a lot of things in the Middle East. I think I probably would characterize the, the views regarding the Abraham Accords, not as strong. And I think it, it is there's this balance between, as Mike said, in a lot of ways, Israel having better relations with its neighbors benefits China from the standpoint of stability. And you know, over decades, China's become 
increasingly the primary economic partner of states in the region, increasingly an important political partner. But with that said, at least at this point, there's very little indication that they want to play the security role that the U.S. does. And so I think that's why it's it's interesting to think through, you know, Mike's take on it. And, and I agree. I think analysts disagree on this. And, and I think it is it's unclear exactly what you know the perspectives are. But it is interesting to think through to what degree is China comfortable with the U.S. security role. They definitely want to have balanced relations between Iran and the Arab states, but even that has been shifting over time and that arguably Iran really is not as important to China as the Arab Gulf, right, and other other areas. So um, I do think it's, it may be too early to tell what their overall views on the Abraham Accords are, but there's really interesting dynamics in thinking through, and, and even on the current situation, I think one of China's biggest concerns is that this is going to actually become a region-wide war which, as Mike said earlier on the, the current discussions with the Chinese government, you know, regarding these issues from a U.S. government, you know, to China government standpoint, I don't have any inside knowledge regarding that, but I assume part of that is about the current Israel-Hamas conflict, but part of it is about trying to keep it from spilling into a much bigger um, issue. And I do think China has a real um, interest in that type of broader war not occurring. One of the other um, questions that I have with respect to China's influence um, in the region has to do with Iran specifically. And Craig, I know earlier this summer you had published an article in Foreign Policy that was speaking about how China benefits from um, uh, the this sort of new Iran deal um, and that how Iran's economic sanctions really enabled China to hold significant economic leverage over it and that perhaps if sanctions are lifted in the future, China's leverage over Iran will erode. Um, so obviously, since that article was published, we've seen a significant sort of weakening of some of these sanctions, specifically the $6 billion um, prisoner swap deal. Um, there has been a continuation of some of the other um, uh, uh, sort of assets that have been frozen um, being uh, delivered to uh, into Iranian hands. So how much leverage do you see China as having over Iran and how would um, a, a sort of continuation of sanctions relief change that dynamic? You know, writing that piece seems like a million years ago now, given the events of the last few weeks. I, I think in my view, you know, China's influence or control, and I would use those terms very loosely, um, has the potential to maybe erode a little bit as sanctions sunset and Tehran diversifies some of its external partnerships. Uh, at the same time, you know, China's reliance on Iran could increase, right, as Beijing becomes, I think, gradually a little more dependent on some of these Iranian energy supplies to meet some domestic uh, needs. Now, some of those demands may shift because of China's current economic slowdown, and depending on how long and sharp uh, that slowdown is, uh, I think some of those resource demands could sort of ebb and flow over time. But I do think it does sort of lead to a little bit of an inverse power dynamic um, that will leave Beijing a little less able to meaningfully constrain or shape Iran's behavior to the extent it can even do that today. Um, I don't think there's any real doubt about Iran's eventual plans, you know, with a lot more money and funding, I think comes enhanced support for all of these like very nefarious proxy groups. Uh, and so I do think that there needs to be a little bit more of a serious conversation about uh, how we're going to be monitoring funds and distribution of funds that are held in these accounts, uh, how we are going to perhaps think about ways in which uh, Iran needs to be held to account um, far more seriously than it has for its support, both logistically and rhetorically for what's happening there. Um, and at the same time, to sort of balance that with the needs to keep Iran on on the sidelines um, to the extent that's possible, uh, simply because I think owing to all of these competing resource demands, I think owing to the complexity of the current conflict uh, there, but also, of course, what's going on in Ukraine and uh, increasingly alarming rhetoric from China about potential reunification and sped up timetables with Taiwan, um, it we do sort of have to prioritize uh, how we're going to go about this. I don't think there's a magic 
potion here. I don't think there's a magic recipe, uh, Goldilocks sort of formula, um, but it will require, I think, a very hands-on approach uh, in a way that will be incredibly complex for the U.S. policymakers to handle because they are being pulled in so many different directions and executive time, particularly uh, you know, in the situation room when you're there with the, you know, the, the senior leadership. There's only so many minutes in the day. And I do think that these increasingly complex resource demands um, may take some attention away from the Iranian nuclear issue, but we can't sort of divorce what's happening in Israel-Hamas war from sort of those broader complex issues. So I, um, this is a great segue to a question that I'd like to ask all three of you. Um, and I am i don't know if you'll have the same perspective or different ones. So it'll be great to hear. Um, so there's been this conversation. I, I've heard it um, stated by Ambassador Nikki Haley during her presidential campaign. I've heard others picking it up. Um, uh, folks over at FDD, I know, this uh, uh, sort of alliance between Russia, China, and Iran. Um, I know this session focuses exclusively on the Middle East, but I just wonder, in light of the fact that Israel is currently engaged in a war to eliminate an Iran-backed proxy, uh, Ukraine is still trying to repel Russia's invasion. Um, how how do you see each of you individually these two wars as relating to each other or not? And and how do you see the outcomes of those wars as potentially impacting China's calculus on, for example, invading Taiwan? And maybe I'll I'll start with Mike, and then um, would just love to hear from all three of you. I think there's no doubt that Iran and China and Russia all have this sort of convergence of interests when it comes to undermining the American role in the world. And, and we see them acting together in lots of different ways. I mean, so we see Iran providing military equipment to Russia. So is China. Um, we see the Chinese buying cut rate oil from both Russia and Iran. I think we have to be clear, though, that this is not an alliance per se. I mean, these are states which don't particularly like each other for the most part um, and which are cooperating more out of necessity than anything else. Um, and in fact, Iran, you know, for its part, uh, just like China, has no real allies in the world. Uh, it's a reflection of their uh, approach to national security and foreign policy that they don't enter, enter into sort of mutually beneficial uh, alliances with other countries. Um, when it comes to the interrelationship between these two wars, you know, I, I think it's actually, you know, they're obviously quite different. Uh, Hamas mounted this terrorist attack against Israel on October 7th. Uh, it's a non-state actor. Yes, it's backed by Iran. Um, uh, in, in With Russia and Ukraine, we see, you know, two, two states, one uh, basically uh, sort of declaring war on the other and, and, uh, and simply invading it. Um, and also Russia gets some backing from Iran, but but there isn't there aren't sort of clear connections here. I think where I do see a connection, frankly, is in the U.S. role. I mean, here we have a question of are we going to stand by our partners, by our allies as they experience, you know, in Ukraine's case, invasion by a neighbor. In Israel's case, some of the worst terrorism we have seen, perhaps the worst terrorism we have seen since 9-11 or are we going to have a short attention span and get tired of these things and say, look, this is forever war, you know, let's stop doing it. I think that this is what Iran, China, Russia, and then frankly, also U.S. partners are watching to see, um, because we have unfortunately projected in recent years a short attention span, the idea that we will support you for so long and then we kind of get tired of it and we want to move to something else. And unfortunately, as we look forward uh, at a world which is uh, going to be characterized by great power competition, which may be characterized by more of these kinds of local conflicts that have sort of global um, sort of implications or global interactions, we're going to have to have the ability to persevere, the ability to stand by partners, potentially through years of low level conflict. And um, I think that's the real question. That's what's being tested in both cases is do we have the perseverance? Do we have the determination to do that? Or are we going to succumb to this temptation to withdraw and to try to isolate ourselves um, in a way that will benefit the Russians, Chinese and Iranians alike? I'll go to Don and then Craig. 
Yeah, so I think from a Chinese perspective, I think they see these as very different conflicts, you know, as Mike has already described. And I, I mean, to the, to the core question regarding China, Russia, Iran, I, I completely agree with Mike's assessment that it's not, I think there's shared interests. And in each of these scenarios, there are ways in which there's some cooperation, but I think they're, they're very different. It shouldn't be framed as a formal alliance. Um, and even when you start just looking at how China views what's happening in the Middle East right now, um, I would say they view this, again, as I said before, kind of part of this much broader historical issue, and that a lot of their behavior is driven by their perception that this is a very asymmetric um, battle between Israel and Hamas and tying that into national liberation movements, et cetera, which as, as Mike said, is very different than the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the way in which that is playing out. You asked on Taiwan. And so I think all three of these, you know, we, we tend to, because these conflicts are occurring, we tend to think through the, the lessons. And I think, you know, the, the lessons that China is taking from this in relation to Taiwan. I think it's it's way too early to tell, but I think it's just another example of they see the Taiwan um, issue just as a very different type of conflict or type of disagreement. And so I think they probably drew more from Ukraine than they do from what's happening in the Middle East in relation to Taiwan, because obviously with the sanctions and with international response, although I would argue they already assumed that you'd have that type of reaction in a Taiwan scenario. I think you can argue there's a lot of lessons from that. The, the lessons from the, the current conflict in the Middle East, I don't think are as applicable, other than what I worry about is part of what they may start doing is highlighting the differences between themselves and the US or, or themselves and Israel and try to make themselves look better in relation to Xinjiang or in relation to Taiwan, you know, um, and draw some of those parallels and, you know, try to shape, I think, perceptions globally around that. But I don't think they're staying up at night worried about what's happening there or how that could translate into a Taiwan scenario. Greg. I mean, I, I agree. I think there's a lot less of a shared vision and more of a mutual loathing of the United States that binds them together. I think I think responding to a, today's sort of Iran-backed provocations and future Iranian provocations will absolutely, though, undermine some efforts to shift additional resources, I think, from places like the Middle East to the Indo-Pacific. And so with every year that the so-called you know, pivot to Asia never materializes. And I think with with some questions about the the current intensity of U.S. deterrence in the Indo-Pacific uh, with a lot of, I think, Chinese sort of suspecting that it's, it's potentially waning, you know, China could become, I think, confident enough to conduct even riskier military maneuvers than those it has been conducting in and around Taiwan's territorial waters for the last year, the, the largest ever. Um, I don't think invasions are contagious, um, but I do think that failing to respond to Chinese aggression today does risk encouraging Chinese overreach and potentially Chinese miscalculation, and that could lead to catastrophe sort of tomorrow. And so we do run this risk of greater instability in two contested theaters, the Middle East, the Indo-Pacific, uh, with this war in Ukraine still raging in a third uh, and I think to to Dawn's point and, you know, consistent with with her book, which I thought was great, is, you know, as China's thinking about tomorrow and its messaging for the global south, particularly in terms of a potential Taiwan contingency, I think they have reason to be heartened by the number of countries that have come out or have been silent about um, the Israel-Hamas conflict. And I do think in certain respects, they're, they're thinking and strategizing about how um, they could play uh, a similar role. Uh, sort of rhetorical, our team versus yours in the event of a Taiwan contingency, because they do assess that there is strength in in numbers, and they do assess that there would be a lot of voices in the global south, and particularly in the Middle East, that would either stay silent in the events of China as determines it wants to reunify by force, or um, may very well side with Beijing um, if that if that were to ever happen. One of the things I've been struck by in these conversations um, uh, is in every region, uh, one of the things that China seems to be doing quite well um, is um, they have this sort of creativity to their engagement, right? That they they do a lot of sort of public diplomacy work. They do a lot of cultural diplomacy work. 
one of the things that make that makes me think of Craig as you're talking about messaging um, is uh, is TikTok, um, and obviously TikTok has emerged as as almost this uh, vehicle for for pro Hamas propaganda um, here in the West um, and specifically among young people. Do you think, as you assess, um, you know the, that specific platform? Do you think that's sort of a deliberate effort on the part of the CCP, or do you think that it's, um, you know, it's sort of like a, 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 let's call it happy accident for them? I mean, how would you characterize their view of, you know, TikTok's role in in shifting the public discourse on the Israel-Hamas war? Sure. I mean, I, I think Mike touched upon this earlier, too. I, I think it's impossible to divorce the amplification of sort of anti-Semitic and anti-Israel messaging on platforms like TikTok from Beijing's own messaging on these issues. Um, there is very clear direction from the party uh, on these matters, not just as it relates to Israel-Hamas war, but more broadly. Um, and I think a lot of that is driven because the, the presence of Chinese Communist Party cells in companies like ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok, as well as all Chinese companies, um, are increasingly sort of beholden to the party state and are aligning their values, interests, and operations with um, with Beijing's sort of larger directives and Xi Jinping thought in particular um, being directly incorporated into their um, into their structural documents, their founding documents. And so, I do think Beijing has used state-backed platforms to amplify rhetoric that aligns with China's goals, while muting or dampening messaging or content that conflicts with those stated goals. But I think the bigger challenge, at least in my view, and I'm not on TikTok, but I have a chance to sort of see what's being propagated there, is that the algorithm can certainly amplify certain content, but that content has to be created first. Uh, and so you end up with a self-reinforcing cycle in which TikTok users uh, predominantly, you know, 18 to 30 year old people uh, here in the United States are creating and sharing this sort of anti-Semitic and I think pretty harmful content. And then the algorithm is doing what it does best, right? It's amplifying these hateful themes further. And so that self-reinforcing cycle is one that I don't think we can simply blame the algorithm or Beijing for that. We do have to address just growing anti-Semitism um, writ large uh, here in the United States and amongst TikTok users. And I think that is what's been playing out in on places like U.S. college campuses across the country. Um, John, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about the Gulf countries. We, we've spoken about them as they relate to the Abraham Accords uh, most dominantly. And as Mike pointed out, so those countries have all indicated that this current uh, conflict between Israel and Hamas is not going to um, impede the continued normalization with Israel. Um, but obviously, the Gulf has this growing influence in the Middle East. Um, we're talking much more about Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Um, Qatar has even been a, a, a huge topic recently. You mentioned that China has sort of prioritized the Gulf countries. What does their relationship look like with those countries? How are they trying to expand upon that relationship? So the way I would characterize China's relations with the Gulf is I think they see the countries in the Arab Gulf as being the future of the kind of economic activity in the region more broadly. And they see a lot of complementary um, aspects between their own economic goals and development and those of the various vision plans throughout the Gulf. And if you look over time, you do see it's a subtle shifting, but you do see a shifting with more emphasis on interaction with the League of Arab States, in particular in, in the Gulf with the GCC, you know, with, with other aspects that I think at this point, you can pretty confidently say, if you had to choose one part of the Middle East as being the most important, it would be the Arab Gulf. And so that's really, that's how I would characterize how they view that. And I think you also have to think about China's own struggles that, that have been brought up regarding um, economic slowdown and, and trying to transition their economy. And so as they try to expand their cooperation in technical um, development or in you know digital platforms or in health or in green technology, I think they very much see the Arab Gulf states as having the, the resources and the desire to cooperate with them, but also having political systems that are not are not necessarily going to threaten China from the standpoint of, if you look at North Africa, a lot of their worries in North Africa, in Egypt, in other regions, it's about the instability. It's about, you know, these alternating 
power um, between different regimes could really risk China's investment and you know uh, cooperation with those countries. So I think they they really see the Arab Gulf as being stable, um, having a lot of resources, and being the future. Mike, you know, you had written a piece um, also now going back a ways um, in, in foreign affairs, and you suggested that it's sort of unrealistic to force countries to choose between the U.S. and China. Um, so what do you think is the appropriate, say, messaging or expectation that we should have um, for what sort of how other nations should behave as it relates to great power competition between the U.S. and China? And specifically, as it relates to the Middle East, when does it not really matter if China builds a stronger relationship um, than the United States? Well, look, I think, first of all, we have to be realistic in that these countries are all going to have relations with China, uh, especially in the economic sphere. And given sort of the weight of China in global um, economic activity, it's going to be a robust relationship. I think we also have to be realistic that the sort of uh, landscape globally of energy markets has changed so dramatically over the last 20 years where you know China is now the world's biggest importer of uh, of energy, and most new demand going forward is going to come from China and other Asian countries, not from uh, Europe or the United States. That's a sort of tectonic shift, which is totally out of our hands, essentially. And so anytime you're making policy, you sort of have to start with what's the reality that we're facing, and that's the reality that we're facing. That said, um, you know, frankly, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, China is not offering these states what the U.S. can offer. And so we really remain for all states in the Middle East with only a couple of exceptions, you know, and those exceptions tend to be adversaries like Syria and Iran, um, the security partner of choice and the diplomatic partner of choice for these states. And, you know, these states largely want to trade with China and to some extent use China against us. And I don't mean that in a sort of nefarious way, but more in the sort of manner of hedging but also using China as a little bit of a kind of threat to wield against the United States, saying whenever we, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of refuse to sell something, you know, threaten penalties, they can say, well, we'll go to Beijing. And, and that tends to get our attention. Um, and we have to make sure that we, you know, sort of are continue willing to continue playing that role. I, I think the, the sort of single thing that could best facilitate China's rise as sort of a security and diplomatic partner in the Middle East is if we just simply say we're not going to do it anymore. And then they won't have much choice. Even then, it might not be so straightforward because what you see is that increasingly countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, and so forth themselves are playing a greater role on the world stage. And so we tend to talk as though, well, it's a choice between the U.S. and China. I don't think Middle Eastern states see it this, this way. I think they see themselves as rising global powers, even if they're smaller powers. Um, and they think that their relations with the U.S. and China can help them to achieve that status, the sort of prosperity and influence that they're looking for. Um, so when it comes to what we say to these states about China, I would say first and foremost, and this often gets neglected in these conversations, we need to understand, we need to make sure that our partners understand Chinese strategy uh, as well as we do. We spend a lot of time looking at China and thinking about what China is doing, not just in the Middle East, but globally, but also and also domestically, thinking about the sort of revolution essentially that Xi Jinping has brought to China and the dramatic shift that he's brought to China's foreign policy. There's far less attention on that um, in countries in the Middle East, in part because they simply don't have the resources to devote to that. And so we need to ensure that from a sort of analytical and intelligence standpoint, these countries understand what China is trying to do both in their region and in the world. And, and then we need to make sure that they understand our strategy towards China and how the requests that we're making fit within that strategy. Um, you know, when we come with a request, for example, say, don't do business with this particular China Chinese state-owned enterprise, you know, don't uh, do business with this particular Chinese defense uh, industry, it's good for us to be able to, number one, sort of talk about why this fits into a, a bigger picture uh, strategically and why it's in actually the interest of our partners to take these requests seriously, but also talk about our, our own policies. Because oftentimes when our diplomats come forward with a request, sometimes the people, uh, the sort of target audience, you know, our partners understand America's own policies, say domestically, better than our diplomats do. So for example, you know, this thing that we're asking them not to buy from China, do we buy it ourselves in the United States? Oftentimes the answer is yes. Uh, you know, when we say, for example, don't buy drones from China or something like that. Well, if you look at the United States, we're buying a lot of drones from China. 
And so it, it's, you know, part of this is also getting our own house in order, making sure our own policy is coherent and making sure that our diplomats who are going overseas to make these requests understand what's happening in the United States itself. You know, from, from there, Kerry, we just have to make requests which are um, high priority. So we, we can't focus on stuff that isn't that important to us. We have to focus on what's really important. And that tends to be high tech and military stuff. Not only, but but those are the two big ones, I would say. Thank you. I will not ask you how not asking other countries to do what we ourselves won't do relates to recognition of Taiwan. Um, but but I, I think it's a really uh, it's a it's a very compelling point. Um, so I, I'd like to sort of ask um, all three of you um, a, a sort of key question. This is a way that we've sort of ended all of these conversations, which is for those of you, you know, since you all three of you study China in the Middle East, um, I guess I have two questions um, to close this out. One, how do you make the argument to the American public, for example, um, that we should be continuing to be worried about um, other regions when obviously China is such a significant threat? And how do you respond to the argument that in a competition with China, the U.S. should focus exclusively on what's going on um, in the Indo-Pacific? And maybe um, we'll uh, we'll start with Don, uh, Craig, and then close out with Mike. I think a lot of the way that, that I look at this is ultimately the way in which from a U.S. government standpoint, but also more broadly, the way in which we're framing our relationships is about this competition, that it's not exclusively focused in Asia. When you start to look at the, the liberal international order, or if you start to look at economic engagement, or if you look at influence, you know, Craig made some really you know, important points earlier regarding you know, the, the global South. There are a lot of countries in the global South and de dependent on the forum that we're interested in advocating for US interests in having states in the global South supportive of, of US behavior and US stance is important in pursuing our own interests in relation to China. So I think you know, from my perspective, there's many aspects of this broader competition that play out all over the world. And so if we focus too much just on Taiwan or on Asia Pacific, we're gonna miss those other elements. And although I agree with Craig's assessment that what's happening in the Middle East is gonna make it even more challenging for the US to shift some of its attention more towards Asia, I think we need to going forward be thinking globally about Latin America, about the Middle East, about Sub-Saharan Africa, about you know what China's relationships with those regions mean for China having access to minerals, having you know um, military cooperation, having political support. So that's how I would frame it. Thank you so much, Don Craig. I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but having served a few overseas tours in the Middle East, you know, I'm just not entirely convinced that sort of American leadership alone and American exceptionalism alone can can fix all of these challenges in the Middle East. Um, I know that there are some that think that's the case. I, I'm a little more skeptical. I think the U.S. still has some really vital interests there uh, to protect, but we need to be really realistic and prudent and disciplined in how we go about securing them. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned about avoiding overreach and arrogance and a lot of self-inflicted wounds that I think uh, we have caused for ourselves. And I'm not entirely convinced that U.S. taxpayers um, are thinking or are particularly keen, I would say, to provide massive security guarantees to this region at the same time that they perceive that they are starting to hedge towards China uh, or that our the, the return on investment for our security guarantees is that China is able to, to make a buck over there. I don't think any of that means that Washington should ignore the many challenges that beset the region, humanitarian are chief among them, but I'm not sure we can reasonably right now uh, invest in issues that don't relate directly to America's vital interests or where stakeholders, local stakeholders, I'd say, are not ready to do a lot of heavy lifting. There are lots of areas that I think we'd all agree are pretty vital, like limiting terrorism and protecting oil flows and preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. But we are forced in a constrained resource environment, an exhausted American public, um, and some very creative messaging and narrative shaping from the Chinese to sort of grapple with the failed promise of idealism and instead maybe seek a little bit more of a return to realism in some of these places. That is unless we're somehow, and I have a hard time seeing it occur, 
you know, thinking about doubling or tripling our defense budget or, you know, really massive expenditures that would be needed to go everywhere and do everything all at once. Thanks very much. Mike, close us out with some optimism, please. <laughs> you know, Carrie, whenever anyone asks me, you know, how do we convince the American people of X? My answer usually is, are we sure that they're not already convinced of it? You know, as a U.S. policymaker, you we have the luxury, we have the privilege of representing uh, a great country and a great people. Uh, and I think that Americans, by and large, understand the importance of the American leadership role in the world. I have never seen a poll of Americans that uh, indicates they think that we should focus only on the Indo-Pacific. I think they understand the value and importance of American leadership globally. Uh, and I think it's often policymakers who forget. So I would say Americans understand, if you look at polls, that the Middle East is important. They're worried about Iran developing a nuclear weapon. They do worry about terrorism. They understand that stability in the Middle East is important to us. It's policymakers that forget. And so we need to convince policymakers uh, of what, frankly, I think Americans already know. Great. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate all three of you, Don, Craig, Mike. Um, thank you for sharing your expertise with us in such a fluid and rapidly changing environment. Um, we, we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at VandenbergCoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.